0: we're going to take um, a break from our psalm series as we're almost coming to the close with that series anyways, but take a break this morning to talk about prayer and essentially to call you to be a people of prayer. Now, there is nothing that will get a group of Christians guiltier quicker than talking about prayer. Uh, We have got to get better at this prayer thing. And that's usually as soon as a pastor preaches on prayer, we even mention prayer we're already going, oh, I know. I know. Just You don't have to tell me. I should be better at prayer. I should do this more. And, and you know how you get better at prayer? You, you pray. Andrew Murray, if you want to hear someone who's more um, profound than me, he said this. Reading a book about prayer or listening to lectures and talking about it is very good, but it won't teach you to pray. You get nothing without exercise and without practice. I might listen to a beautiful piece of music for a year but it won't teach me to play the music. But Jesus, so Jesus has given us instructions, though, and so we will look at that. So but my call for you this week is I'm going to give you some instructions this morning on how to pray, what it looks like to pray, but I ask you to practice it this week, call you to come and pray. Prayer is like walking. You may not think you're very good at it, but you simply you start with where you are and you start walking in the same way you start. Praying, So we're going to talk about prayer this morning, and we're going to look at the classic passage on prayer, where Jesus, his disciples say, teach us how to pray, and he goes, okay. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, to give us the broader context. Why don't you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? We do this occasionally, just to remind you, it's not simply just uh, an effort on my part to get blood flowing through you. But it's a reminder that while I will preach God's word... God's word is authoritative in our life, and therefore it's holy. demands special attention, so hear God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 6. Be aware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be seen not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God. May yet stand and live forever. You may be seated. Prayer. This morning, we get, I think, in the larger context of this prayer, we see, obviously, not only the, with the content that we're to pray, we see some priorities for our prayer life, we see God's power in our prayers, but in the greater contents, we also see the point of prayer. The point of prayer, and that's where we're going to start this morning. Point of prayer. What is the point of prayer? Why do we pray? What's the point of this whole talking to no one, to someone who's not doesn't appear to be there? Isn't isn't prayer bizarre? Like if someone walked into the church this week and we're all sitting around in a circle, kind of looking down at the floor and talking, it's bizarre. It's so weird, and yet God calls us to do it. What's the point of this? Well, I'm going to to get to the point in a roundabout way by looking at the the reasons what the point isn't. Verse 5 and verse 7, I think, show us what the point isn't. For one thing, prayer, the point of prayer, is not to to just simply look good in front of other people. We're not simply doing this because this is the religious thing to do this week. We're not simply praying because, you know... This is what your grandma taught you to do, was to pray. No, in verse 5, it says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This kind of person is the type of person who has a great and a wonderful, very pious prayer life in front of the public. They get up, and they, they have their great prayer life. They come to the prayer meetings. They want to be seen as a person of prayer, a person of great piety, The point is, though, here, what Jesus would say is these people look really spiritual, they look really obedient, but they actually have no real prayer life in secret with God. So one reason not to pray is to simply make yourself look good in front of the other people. So don't come this week if that's your goal. If your goal is to say, well, you know, I want to look good in front of all these church people, then that's not the reason to pray. Here's the other reason not to pray and that's verse 7. It says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. So what Jesus is doing here is he's turned into one group, Once the, the very religious people, the hypocrites, who only really pray in public. They have no personal relationship with God. And then we turn to the other group, and this is the Gentiles, the pagans in the mind of the Jewish people to whom Jesus is speaking to. And what he says in the other translations is that the Gentiles, they babble on like pagans. In other words, what he's saying is they use many words. And it's, they, it's what he says is that they, because of their fervor, or they think because of their fervor, their great passion, if they can just say the right things and have the greatest amount of fervor as they pray, then God will hear their prayers and he will say yes to them. In other words, the way in which they're interacting with God is not in a relationship, but they're acting, treating God as if they can buy his favor. That if we just work ourselves up into a spiritual fervor enough, then God will see that we're really, we really mean this prayer today. And because I really, really mean it, and I've shown it by just saying these prayers over and over and over again and saying a lot of just, God, will you just do this? Then God will know that I mean it, and he'll answer my prayers, and he'll hear me. This is a relationship with God that is based on your own abilities, that you think God will say yes and that God will answer you because of what you bring to him. This is a non-religious prayer life. This is essentially trying to buy your favor with God by how great you are at praying. Listen, don't come this week. Don't come this week because you can think you can buy God's favor. And listen, I can also say this. If you come this week and you pray for a really long time, we're all going to question you as well. Right? You ever been in a prayer meeting, and people just go, you've got the one person, and they just take over, and they pray over and over and over again, and they pray for a really long time. In corporate prayer meetings, that's never good. Pray short prayers this week. One sentence, two sentence, three sentence prayers, and be done with it. God hears you from the word go. You don't have to convince us or convince him in order to get him to hear you with your long-winded prayer life. But why? What is the point of prayer? Why should we pray? If it's not these two reasons, why? The the reason why we should pray is to get to know God. How How does it begin? The great Christian prayer Our Father, our Father. We often think that prayer is asking for what we want. Prayer, though, is not asking for what you want, but it's encountering who you want. Prayer is not coming to you. The reason why you pray, the purpose of prayer and the point of prayer is not to get what you want. It's to get who you want. Pray this week, brothers and sisters. Come and join us in corporate prayer because you want to know Jesus better. You want to have the heart of God alive in you. The reason why you pray is to have a relationship with God. Actually, this talks about God as father here. And that is, that is the great paradigm for which we are to view our relationship. We even see this in Galatians chapter 4 when it talks about when we believe the gospel, we not only become Jesus, God's children legally, but we receive the Spirit who convinces us and ushers us into the experience of our sonship, that we are sons and daughters of God. And when we, that, that Spirit leads us into being like little children who come to the Father and say, Abba, Father, I want to know you, God. The reason why you should pray, the point of prayer is to get to know God better. He is heavenly, he is infinite, he is transcendent, he is holy, he is sovereign, and he is kingly. But first and foremost, it begins with he is fatherly. And he welcomes you and he beckons you to come spend time with him. And we see this over and over and over again in even Jesus' interactions with people. You remember in Luke 11, in Luke 11, which is the par- a parallel account, in which we see in Luke 11 is the other place where Jesus shows his disciples the same exact prayer. So we have Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Well, the context in which we see him say it in Luke 11 is it's right after Jesus has come and been a part of a, a, a time of teaching at Mary and Martha's house. Well, what we have seen there is we have seen that Martha is the sister who is sitting at Jesus' feet. She's sitting, I'm sorry, Martha is the one running around trying to serve Jesus. And Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And he says this, Martha, Martha, when Jesus is rebuking Martha for not coming and being quiet with him. He says, Martha, Martha, Mary has found the one thing that is necessary. And that is to spend time with me. You pray because you want to spend time. David says the same thing, right? Psalm 27, four. one thing I will seek after, one thing that I need to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You pray to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, to see the glory of God. In John 17, Another great example of how Jesus prays, where Jesus pr- actually prays for us, his people, prays specifically for his disciples. And pretty much the first thing that he wants for his disciples is he wants them to see the glory of God. You come face to face with the glory of God when you pray. So if we're to view prayer like as children coming to the Father, this has implications for how we ought to pray, doesn't it? If you have a little child that comes to a Father and and asks them for things and comes into their presence, they have various ways in which they approach the Father. And I think what is seen here in this image of Father and children, but also seen throughout the Scriptures, is that when children come to the Father and when they come praying to God, they come boldly and they come persistently. I went back this week as I was getting ready for this, and I've preached on prayer five times in my four years here. And I was going back and looking over all my notes from all those sermons and, all the, and the various sermons and every single one of them, I hadn't ever put this together. Every single one of them, one of the applications from the text is be bold and be persistent in prayer. It's consistently in the scriptures. And Luke chapter 11, again, after, right after Jesus has given his example, or right before he gives his example to the, um, to the disciples about how to pray and the Lord's prayer, he then gives this account. Jesus, picking up in verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Which one of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence... He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And then it'll go on and say, If if this is how a, a bad neighbor will treat you, how much more will a good father treat you? Jesus, the perfect neighbor. What Jesus is telling about in here in this, in this account is there's a man who's gone to bed with his family. And back then, people would have to sleep in the same beds, right? They didn't have beds like us. And they all would sleep in the same room. And so he's locked the door. And he's hanging, he's, all his family's in bed. And his neighbor comes and knocks on the door and says, I, I, I need some bread. Will you have any, any bread? i got to feed this person who's come to my house. He says, no, I'm not going to get up. My kids are here. I'm going to wake them up. And it's you know I have to go get the bread. No, I'm not going to get up. You, you have bothered me in the middle of the night. But the, he will eventually get up. Why? It says because of the impudence, the persistence of the man knocking on the door. And Jesus says that is how you pray. That is how you pray. You bug God with your prayers. Like a child bugs a father? Is, is, is Jesus, is God just simply a petulant neighbor who's eventually just gonna go, oh, fine? No, he's way better than that. What, what, but here's the question what, and with our persistence, why do we need to ask over and over and over again? Here's the reality because persisting in prayer actually drives you to this place where you realize, in offering your desires before God, by perhaps making you wait, you begin to realize that really what you need most of all, more than anything else, is God himself. Henry Nouwen put it this way, you must be patient in your prayers and persistent in your prayers until your hands are completely open to God. You're persistent, so be persistent in your prayers. You know, it, it, later, it talks about that you should knock, Right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. It, says, it talks about knocking the door, and the door will be open to you. Knocking. Now, when you knock on someone's door, do you simply just do it once? Knock. That's a thud, right? No one's going to answer the door. They're going to go, what? Did you hear that? No, knocking is what we're going to do. It's knock, 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 knock. Many of you are Big Bang Theories fans. that's what Sheldon does when he goes to Penny's door. Penny. 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 And so you need to do this in your prayer life. Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, would you be persistent and keep knocking? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that we are to give God no rest. Keep on, bombard God, bombard heaven until the answers come. If You think this is simply me making too big of a deal about this? It actually says this in the scriptures as well. Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. On your walls of Jerusalem I have set watchmen all day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it the praise of the earth. Give God no rest. Be persistent with your prayers like a child. Now, only children can get away with this, right? Now, after church, if I'm talking to one of you and I'm having a conversation, we're in a deep conversation about something going on in your life. And someone, one one of the other people in the church would come up to me and just come up next to my shoulder and go, hey, hey hey, hey, I would eventually go, turn and go, what? Go away. You are being rude. Now, if my, ch- now the only person in the church, my wife can't even get away with that, right? If my wife did that, she also would get that same response, maybe even worse than you guys. But the one person, the two, actually there's three or four people in this church who can get away with that. They're my children. They can come up and go, hey, Hey, they can be like the man in the middle of the night. In fact, they did this three times last night. And once they come to me and say, Hey, would you like to come sleep in my bed with me? The persistence of little children. Only kids can do this. Only we as God's children can have the boldness. And the boldness to courageously, courageously come by God's bed at night and say, Would you come and be next to me? President of the United States, if you need him, you try to call him, you might, you might be able to get the White House switchboard, maybe. But you would never be able to get him. But there's a couple of people who live down the hall from him who if they called in the middle of the night, he could come running. You know how to pray? You want know to pray? You pray like a child. Let me give you a recommendation of a book that I think would drive this home for you. It's A Praying Life by Paul Miller. The whole book is about this. It's gleaning from the idea of sonship. We are sons and daughters of God. find that understanding this and driving this truth that you are God's child, more than anything else, will drive, will motivate your prayer life, will draw you into sweet communion with God. So pray because you want to know the Father, and pray boldly because He is your Father. The well, second that we look this morning at the priorities in prayer. The priority in prayer. What's the priority here? You see what it is? How does it begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I want you to see this. Very often, our, the focus of our prayer lives is about, give me this, Jesus. We, get, we jump right to my daily bread. But 50% of the prayer is God-focused. It is, thy will be done. It is, may your name be hallowed. In other words, what I want you to see here is that you cannot say, God, give me my daily bread before you have said, God, thy will be done in my life. And thy kingdom come, and your name be praised. Jesus is saying the first and primary goal of our words, of the content of our prayer, the priority of our prayer, is to plunge yourself into the doctrine of who God is. To plunge yourself into worship of who he is. That's what it means to hallowed. May your name be glorified. May it be considered holy and weighty in this world. Some people say, listen, prayer, Shemir, I've tried the prayer thing. I brought God my request. I have been persistent. I brought it time after time after time, and he has not answered. God did not give me what I wanted. And I would say, exactly, because that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is not ultimately or even first and foremost about what you want. The Bible would actually say that you're, when you pray about simply what you want, you're praying amiss. We think the priority and purpose of prayer is getting what we want and we need, but the priority of prayer should actually be asking God for what he wants. God, may what you want actually happen. That's what it is to pray for God's kingdom to come, for his will to be done. The priority of prayer is God's glory and God's honor for his name and renown to be known. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Andrew or whatever your name is, your kingdom. So if our prayers should be taken up with what matters most to God, then what do we pray about? Well, it's right there. We pray for his name to be glorified and for his kingdom to come. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here's the reality. These, this, may your name be hallowed and your kingdom coming. These two things are connected. talked about this a couple weeks ago in regards to multiplication. God, the, the purpose of the world is to glorify God, but the means by which God is glorifying himself and making his name known is by the bringing of his kingdom to bear upon this world's. God's name is written on this world's. Did you know that? Now, what is one of the greatest reasons why people say they don't believe in God or why they're atheists or agnostics? Because this world is broken. And they would say, God, if this is your creation, I want nothing to do with you. As if God doesn't have a problem with the brokenness of this world. To the fact is that God made this world, but his world is broken. He's singing the hymn. This is my father's world, and yet this world is marred. It is fouled up. It is broken. And guess what? He is not happy about it. It's always a stunning thing to me when people, are, people say, they come to me in regards to like issues of God's providence and God's sovereignty, and they say, how could God allow these things? As if it's a mystery. It's a, as if God doesn't know these things are going on. He knows this world is messed up. He knows there are awful things going on, and he is not happy about it, and he is going to do something about it. He has done something, and he will do something about it. You see, the king came. The whole reason why Jesus came was to inaugurate for himself a kingdom so that eventually he says, I have made all things new. That's the goal. What matters to God is the mending of his world's. For his kingdom to come in this place. When an artist paints a picture and he puts his name to the picture. But someone comes in and mars that picture. They're upset by it, right? Because they have defamed the beautiful work of the artist. Their name is upon it. It's like their image has been destroyed. We are made in God's image. Yet mankind is broken. God's upset about that that his image bearers have been broken and destroyed. When we see the the world that God has made, when we see he's upset about this world, he's upset about the fact that AIDS is destroying people's lives, that wars are killing children, that children are abused, that children are slaughtered in the womb. He's upset about these things. He's upset about oppression. This is not the way he made the world, and he is doing something about it. Imagine being, let's see if I can use this illustration about how how passionate we should be. Let's say Bill Fordham, who's a great writer, was a great writer in our area and continues to be, but let's say Bill decided he he loved books and he loved reading, and so he was going to start Bill Fordham's Family Bookstore. Bill Fordham's Family Bookstore, for years, that bookstore grew and developed, and it was this wonderful uh, institution in our city. They had wonderful children's books and and great books that you could be educated on, and they had kids' days where families would go and be able to read, and there would be, people would have parties there because it was such a, a great institution. They would support baseball teams, Bill Fordham's Little League teams, and it would be great. And everyone in the community would say, Bill Fordham is a man of great honor. Well, eventually, Bill grew older, and he decided I couldn't care for the bookstore anymore, so he decides to sell the bookstore, Bill Fordham's Family Bookstore. And eventually the the new owners, though, they take Bill Fordham's Family Bookstore, and they keep the name for the most part, but they begin to realize that porn sells better than simply children's books. It's a great industry. So they begin selling pornography. So it becomes Bill Fordham's Pornography Emporium, And you see signs for it everywhere on I-75, right? Right along with the Cafe Risque signs where you're going through South Georgia. And every three miles, there's a sign that says, Bill Fordham's Pornography Emporium. Turn left here. If you're Bill Fordham's kids, would you be angry about how his name is now being used? I'd be angry. And you would say, I want to restore his name That's what we're about, that bringing the kingdom that God wanted and longs for this world to be like, and in that way, we hallow God's name. Therefore, when you see brokenness, when you see sex trafficking in this world, you say, I want to put an end to that, because that defames the name of God. That destroys his image bearers, and you're passionate about that, and therefore, this becomes the priority of your prayer life. That I will get on my knees and I will plead with God to do something. God, God, would you bring glory to your name once again by changing this broken world into your beautiful kingdom. This changes even the way you pray for your own personal needs, right? You pray for your wayward childs. For some of we pray because we would say, God, rescue my kid. I want my kid's life to work. I want him to be prosperous and, and fruitful. I can't sleep at night, God, because of how, how distressful my kid's life is. Now, that's a nice prayer, but that's not a kingdom prayer. So this, this changes even the way you, cha- you pray for your daily bread, for God's provision. You begin to pray, God, my child is your image bearer. That is a covenant child. You've placed your name on him or her. God, would you bring glory to your name by drawing them out of this addiction, drawing them out of their unbelief, and drawing them back to yourself so that you may be praised? That you be praised. That's a prayer for your child that's prayed in light of God's kingdom and God's glory. It's not ultimately about you, and it's not ultimately about your kid. It's about God's name. It's not the Israelites prayed. God, don't let the Philistines defeat us because if the Philistines defeat us, your name will be defamed. Give us victory. May the kingdom of Israel come because this is where your temple is. This is where your name is. You've placed your name on us. So this is the priority. The priority. This week, we'll pray for God's glory. We start with worship and prayer, with who God is and how we long for the world to know him in that way, for his kingdom to come. Can I, can, I, can I ask you to pray this way? That you would pray, as you read God's word, and you would see, that you begin seeing how God's kingdom is designed, and that you'd start, maybe if you start your kingdom prayers this way, God, your kingdom is this way. God, in your kingdom, there are no orphans. They're all adopted. Therefore, God, but in Kierno County, there are orphans everywhere, God, would your kingdom come? May children be adopted into your family. Give you the context for which to pray all these prayers. Kingdom prayers in light of the nature of God's kingdom. The last, last point we're going to look at, though, this morning is the posture of prayer. We have the priorities of prayer, which is God's glory, his name, and his kingdom. The third, the point of prayer, that he would be glorified, that we would come to know him. The posture is to come to God in this way. is helpless and needy and dependent. How do children come to their fathers? Helpless, needy, and dependent. We are the people who need a handout. That's what we need. We are the people who are desperate. We are needy. We, would, we should pray like this. God, if you don't come and if you won't work then I won't be able to feed my family. Then the city will not be changed. I won't experience the beauty of forgiveness. My relationships will be destroyed. I won't be able to resist temptation. I need you, God, dependence. Some might say, Listen, I no, some people have got have got this flipped. I say, yes, yes, we should be praying about God's glory. Worship, worship, worship. You should spend far less time praying about your needs. Listen, it is not prideful to pray about your needs. Frankly, it's prideful not to pray about your needs. If you don't pray about your needs, it's because you think you can do it all yourself. And one of the things that my wife and I feel like I'm constantly having to confess, I wish it was, would lead to repentance, which means turning away from failure and moving towards doing right But very often, what my wife and I do, at the end of the day when we're debriefing, you're talking about the weight weight of life, the struggles of life, and we talk. And that's nice. That's nice for us to talk. But guess what? My wife can't save my problems, and I can't change hers. But there is a God who can. Very often, it would be, frankly, far more psychologically helpful for us if we would just go, you know what, maybe we should stop talking about this, and maybe we should start praying our fears. Pray. We think we can figure it out. If we just talk it out and talk to enough people, get enough advice, listen, that's fine and that's great, but you should begin by praying. Ray Cortese tells the story of a pastor friend who um, a, a while back um, had back surgery, and his back was completely out. For months and months and months, he was on his back. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't, hardly, he couldn't even hardly watch TV because of the nature of the way he had to be sit in the bed. He couldn't read hardly because he, he couldn't hold up his book very well without it beginning to strain his neck and so for months he laid in bed and so if you can't read hardly you can't watch tv you can't go do anything what what's left to do well he decided he was bored so he prayed not because he was really spiritual but simply because he was bored and there was nothing else to do but as he began to pray he began to enjoy it more and more and more As a pastor, he began to take the church directory and all the names of the people in the church and visiting the church, and he just simply prayed for the names. Every day, he prayed for every single person in his church by name. He said it was the sweetest days of his life as a pastor, before or after. But eventually, he got better, and he was able to go back to work. He says he specifically remembers simply praying this, God, this has been nice, but now I got some work to do i got to get some stuff done. And he realized a number of months later how wrong that was. That God had been given the grace of being able to do nothing but pray for his people. He realized that when he was sick, when he was most sick, he was actually spiritually really well. He was a better pastor. When he was weak, he was strong. But when he got strong again, he got weak. Because he began to lean on his own power we need to be utterly dependent as we come to prayer you pray when you realize you're utterly dependent and in our dependence what are we asking for well three things right three areas really look at these briefly first we pray for our daily bread there are three ways in which we are dependent here on daily bread dependence on bread means it means you live generously it means you live really generously you ever notice this? Does it say, Lord, would you give me my yearly bread? Or my monthly bread? Or my weekly bread? No, it says what? Give me my daily bread. The prayer is hearkening back to the days in which Israel was walking, was heading from the wilderness for 40 years. And God provided them manna for food on each and every day. But the command from God was this, Never collect more than one day's portion of manna. But people would always try to, you know, I'm gonna grab a week's worth so I don't have to trust that tomorrow the manna will come. I'm able to store it up and it'll be in my house, and I won't have to go out and pluck for more manna and hope that today God will drop the manna once again. No, what this is saying is this: that you are so invested in God's kingdom that you become so generous. That you have to wake up each and every day and you have to say, God, would you provide today? Provide today. Are you living with that sort of generosity? See, we would, like, we would really like to avoid this sort of trust and dependence, wouldn't we? This is, a really, this, this is not the kind of dependence we would like. Frankly, everybody else around us would tell us that we're being, we're being bad stewards if we live this way. God, give me my daily breads, God. I'm going to need you Tuesday, and I'm going to need you Wednesday. And I'm going to need you Thursday. And frankly, if you live this generously, my guess is you're going to, have to you're going to be forced on your knees a lot more. Forced on your knees. Maybe you know George, the story of George Mueller, right? He was a great missionary within England who cared for orphans. And he, over his course of his years in ministry, he would never, ever take a salary for this particular reason because he knew that he needed to be utterly dependent on God's provision. So that's what he did. No salary. Get up every day. God, would you provide for my daily bread? Second, dependence on daily bread means we must submit to God's will. you got to submit to God's will. Before we pray, give us our daily bread. Remember, we've prayed, thy will be done. This must be remembered even as we move on to our own specific personal needs or the needs around us. In other words, we must surrender our will to God's will first. If you're remembering that you are God's child, that he is your father, then that means that there are times when God will not give you your daily bread, what you are asking for today. Why? Because he knows better than you do. Remember, he's a father and you're a little child. When my kids come and ask me for candy at 9.30 at night, I say no. Why? Well, mostly it's selfish because I want them to go to bed. But second, it's also good for their good because I know they need sleep. Listen, there's many times in which we as little children go to God and we say, God, this is from my perspective, from my little four-year-old brain. This is what I want. This is what you if you would provide this, this would be the daily bread. This is the provision I need in my life. And God says, that's nice, and that's a sweet prayer, but that's not what you need. You need something more. What's become a famous quote is this God gives us the things that we would ask for if we knew all the things that He does. God, you, God, God gives us the things that we would ask for if we knew everything that He we knew everything that He knows. If you have his perspective and his truth and his maturity and his view and his wisdom, then you would pray perfectly in line with God's will. Lastly, I would also just say this. If you're going to come to that place of submission, of dependence upon him, you're going to have to come to a place of trusting God. And I simply want to say this here. I'm going to quote Soren Kierkegaard who said this. This is our comfort that God answers every prayer for either he gives what we pray for or something far better. This is the reality. In fact, this is what I've. There's a section in my time in my prayer journal. I'll say every day, but right, we all know that would be a lie. But, but a couple times a week, when I get through good prayer time and come to this point of praying my needs and asking for God's provision, I begin it this way. That in my journal, I say I say exactly that. God, I'm going to ask you for these things, and I know you will give them to me, or you'll give them give me something better. You'll give them to me or give me something better. So that's praying for your daily bread. Come to that place of dependence upon God. But we have other ways in which we are dependent on God. Two other ways. And these are not simply things that we want God to give us, but ways in which we want God to change us and shape us. Right. The next is forgiveness, right? God, I'm dependent upon you. I'm coming humbly and dependent on your forgiveness. we to say, forgive us our debts. It means that we come to God confessing our sins because God is a forgiving God. We have to pray penitently and honestly. We're not coming hiding our sins. He knows your sins. So go through the great therapy, the spiritual therapy of confessing them to God, laying them at his feet and asking for his forgiveness. We must come to God as people who understand that we deserve his wrath, but that forgiveness, like any good father, is freely and lovingly offered to us to completing God's forgiveness. But not only of we to ask God to forgive our sins, but we're also saying, God, may you make us a forgiving person. Listen, you may be, it may be easy for you in the quiet and the private to ask God to forgive your sins, but man, it may be far more difficult for you to go, go to God and say, God, help me to forgive the people who've offended me deeply. We need to experience a forgiveness from God that so changes us that we can forgive other people. We've actually, we've been forgiven, and you know how we know it? We know when we become forgiving people. There's actually a warning in this text, and it's quite frightening, isn't it? Later on, right after the prayer, it says, if you don't forgive your neighbor, then your father won't forgive your sins. What? That seems, that seems a little hard. Here's what it means. It it means if you will not forgive, then it shows that you do not understand the gospel, and it shows that you have never actually been forgiven yourself. You've never experienced the forgiveness of God, because those who have come to terms with the wrath that they deserve and the forgiveness that they need so desperately from God, and they've heard God say, "I have forgiven you, I have forgiven you, I have forgiven you." Those people cannot get up on their high horse and say, "I am better than you, and I will never forgive that person." The person who's experienced this kind of level of forgiveness, the infidelity, the terrible infidelity that we have had against God, and yet he has said, I love you and I forgive you and I'm gonna come after you and I'm gonna ransom you back to myself. If you've understood that, then even when that spouse cheats on you, you say, I forgive you. So you gotta forgive. You gotta forgive. Third, we pray for deliverance. So we're dependent on our daily bread. We're dependent on God's forgiveness. And third, we're dependent on his deliverance. Very briefly, the final request here is that we would be a people, when we face temptation, when we face the difficulties of life, that we don't do it out of our own strength, but we do it out of the power of God. In other words, you're saying, God, today I'm going to face some really ridiculous things. I'm going to face co-workers that are nasty and mean, and I just want to slander them. I want to gossip about them behind their back. That's going to be the temptation and listen, I have no power to stop that in and of myself. If you do not come in your power, I am utterly dependent on you to help me obey today, to resist the temptation of the evil one. So here's the question, how do you become a person who surrenders and trusts your Father in this way? you be some so dependent. How do we get, and more than that, how do, we, how do we come to a place where we know, we know that God is our Father? Because there was a son, the answer is, because there was a son who came and prayed this prayer perfectly. Didn't he? There was a son who came and in the garden he says, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to, have to make a way for, them to, for you to be their father, for you to forgive their sins. And yet what does he say? Not my will, but thy will be done. I can come to that level of dependence. Listen, the only way you're going to come to a place where you can depend God in this way, where you can lay before him your life and say, I am utterly dependent on you today. I, I trust completely in your will, not my will, but yours, your will be done ultimately. Is you have to see in the love of God as your father, who would be willing to send his son to give you that incredible gift so that you know that even the most painful thing that God the father brings in your life is ultimately for your Good. See, because Jesus said to his father, thy will be done, we can now boldly come to God our father as forgiven and loved children. And we can know that his answer to us will always be for our good. We may not see it immediately, but we can trust in him fully independently. Hope you can come to that place. Here's the call, brothers and sisters, if you would. 6 a.m. this week, five days, Monday through, th- through Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Would you come pray? One final thing here to say. We're going to pray together prayers. If you're going to understand God's fatherhood for you, it's really good to hear from the other children about how good he is. It's interesting. How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Does it say, my Father who art in heaven? You'd think Jesus would be able to pray that, wouldn't he? No, what does it begin? It says, our Father. We pray corporately, brothers and sisters, because we, like coals, keep each other hot and communicate to each other the love of God the Father as we pray for one another and introduce each other through our prayers to the beauty of God the Father. So would you come join us this week? Hey, let's pray. God, teach us to pray like little children. Not the arrogant, pompous, religious punks that we are. God, I pray that um, as we enter into prayer this week, that um, as we feel, as I feel so so often do, and we say, oh, I've missed you, God. (laughs) I don't understand why I stay so far away from you. I pray that we would quickly confess. We would lay our guilt before you, and then we would come with boldness as children. God, I pray that we would come with a bold trust. Shape our prayers, God, to the values of, our, of your kingdom this week. May our prayers be about your glory and your fame, about your justice and your beauty coming in this place. Would you lead us to pray out of a deep sense of our dependence on you and a confidence in your goodness towards us? So gracious God, teach us to pray as children. And gracious God, we thank you that you've heard this prayer, and you'll hear all the prayers this week through the precious name of Jesus, who has broken through the curtain and takes our prayers before you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.